ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com Good day, good evening, and continued good streaming. Yes, Shepherd Fairy returns. Crypt Magazine's gold tales from the crypt lettering: the return of Shepherd Fairy. Here we go. So you mentioned, of course, collages like Winston's and mine, and many other people, even sculptures, are sometimes, well, almost entirely with collages, comprised of found art. And um, actually, let's take that later if there's time i mean that's a no let's do it now okay um found art and the use of found art um plagiarism theft or all new when it's a visual collage or an audio collage like so much of hip-hop is well my opinion is that there's a vast amount of raw material out there that is achieving nothing and Yet, if you can find a way for it to achieve something, to create a new conversation, to move culture forward, then that is, that is totally valid. Nothing, nothing comes from nothing. You know, everything is b- building upon um, the language we already know. And that's literal language, that's science, that's, that's culture, that's... Um, Sometimes things that we've never even considered why we have the built-in reaction that we do, but it's based on experience and based on historical precedent, how we've become accustomed to things being used. So if you take that and you, you build upon it or you subvert it in a way that gives people fresh insight, fresh perspective, creates a new conversation, it's not plagiarism. Plagiarism is taking something that's functioning in a certain way and just bootlegging it saying somebody building up the resonance for something, whether it has a, you know, a commercial market or not, it's um, once something resonates, it's there, the potential is there to use it commercially. But um, plagiarism is to say, okay, yeah, you did all the hard work here. I'll take it from here and I'll siphon off a bit of what you should be getting. Um, but to take that thing and say, here's how you've been manipulating people out there in the world with it. I have a different idea. I have a different perspective. I'm going to subvert it or I'm going to at least redirect it. That's a new conversation and that's totally valid no matter where the content comes from. And you went through, you weren't arrested, I don't think, but uh, you went through quite an ordeal 
with the person who took the photo you used in the Obama Hope post. Even though, as far as I know, you weren't selling those and making money out of them. And as far as I also know, you didn't, that was not commissioned by the Obama campaign either. You just made them. Yeah, that's true. And, um, you know, I considered what I did fair use because it's uh, a hand-done illustration based on a, a news photograph. And it wasn't actually the photographer that was that was coming after me. It was the Associated Press, whose, whose newspaper oh, that's right. photograph it was. Um, the argument that I made was that it's transformative visually, it's transformative conceptually, uh, and it was used for social and political purposes. All of those things are exceptions to copyright for fair use. And cases have been won by, by, by Richard Prince, by the two live crew around fair use. And I, I thought fairly safe in the way that I was making something that was um, predominantly non-commercial in nature as well. Um, the Associated Press made the argument that they should have had the opportunity to exploit it commercially if they wanted to. And they were really sour grapes that once it started to catch on, that reached critical mass, that they didn't get to make money from it, even though that wasn't the intention. I sold 1,200 posters that um, I used the money to then produce 300,000 posters and half a million stickers that were disseminated free. So um, I, I did not come away with any money, even though a small amount of money was made. I also made um, a couple of paintings and that money was put into postcard campaigns in swing states, as well as um, mo you know more posters and stickers. So the real uh, amazing thing about that was that I was being, I was being sued for something that didn't earn me money based on the hypothetical that the AP could have made a bunch of money from it. And um, it, you know, it was a very stressful situation to be in. I eventually settled with them because they're, they hired a really high powered um, set of lawyers, a great, a powerful firm, and they were suing me for, for millions of dollars. And if I lost, I would have been completely put out of business. So it was better for me to settle and you know and live to keep going with uh with with my art than risk being shut down and going you know back to square one in my life sorry obama no more campaign posters for you <laughs> well especially after we realized what you really were over a four to eight year period of time yeah i had i had but, lots of disappointments with uh with Obama, um, we don't need to go into all of that, yeah. but um, yeah, I I think that probably a lot of people know about what you went through with the with the H.R. Geiger penis landscape insert in the Frankenchrist record. But I mean, that was one of the main stress factors for the for the dead Kennedys. That was uh, things started to kind of um, become fractious with uh, with the band because of that lawsuit. Am I right? It was an arrest. It wasn't a lawsuit. It was a criminal charge for one thing. Oh, and 
Yeah, yeah. It was a law called distribution of harmful matter that had never been tried before. I'm not sure they ever did again, too, because I think they thought I was going to take a slap on the wrist, pay a fine, and then they could use that to go after Prince or Motley Crue or whoever. And they thought they were getting Sid Vicious, and instead they got me, who already knew a hell of a lot about the mute, the people attacking music and uh, the hate campaigns led by Tipper Gore, which I think that was a major reason he didn't win in 2000 because the youth vote wasn't there. Yep. <laughs> they couldn't stand her. Yeah, a lot, lot more damaging than Ralph Nader, even if he wanted to do that. But uh, yeah, so it was it was mostly on me. I mean, the band had kind of split and we knew we were were going to. Luckily, Ray stuck around to record Bedtime for Democracy. And right around the time I was working on the vocals or everything was when this happened. So that took longer to finish. And then so it was mainly on me and they kind of stepped to one side and didn't even so much as lick a postage stamp for No More Censorship Defense Fund. Now they claim all, all this credit for being part of that and stuff like that. But no. Sorry. And then the sad part, I mean, Ray had already given notice, but um, but then, you know, Klaus and DHI were in contact and stuff. And I thought, OK, we can try something completely different, but stick together and everything. But then, you know, in no small part because of that, for a while, they didn't know me. And then eventually they did. And then now, well, it is what it is, unfortunately, and R.I.P.D.H. But yeah. uh, anyway, um. Have you uh, have you ever been gone after for uh, co-opting or desecrating other people's culture? You know, this is a somewhat of a new new phenomenon, um, and I I, I want to be very sensitive about how I tackle anything um, that that has you know a sacred value to a community, but at the same time. A lot of my my interests in different cultures and different visuals mean that I consider myself a, a world citizen, not just a uh, you know a, a straight white guy originally from the South who's now traveled a good bit, but you know even just an American. I'm I look at how people find different ways to 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 skin what is for the most part similar. Um, you know, aspirations and feelings globally. And so when I, when I work with a pattern from Turkey and a motif from Japan and a, a, a color scheme from Russia, um, this is, this is not to say, oh, I, I, I'm in insensitively having all these things that, that, um, are colliding that actually are out of sync with each other. What I'm frequently saying is they are in sync with each other, but you superficially are are seeing them as out of sync. But under the, under the surface, there we're all looking for the same things. And so, you know, more recently, I've had to explain a lot of my my approach to saying, uh, you know, pushing back against xenophobia or um, cultural hierarchy by including a lot of things that this is not me appropriating someone else's culture. This is me attempting to elevate their culture um, because everything in the United States is seen through a lens of, of, of bias that, you know, 
American lives are worth more than everyone else's life. American culture is better than everyone else's culture. But at the same time, I don't want people to feel like something that's important to them is is not is is being a, approached in a cavalier way. So um, yeah, I try to do my research and 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 see what the right or wrong way to do something is. But at the same time, um, if you're worried about offending people, um, not offending anyone, you can't do anything. And um, I, I right. you know, I, I don't want to go through life, you know, fearing that I'll offend someone and not speak my mind and not make the visuals I want to make. And I hope that if people take a second to really look at where I'm coming from, that they realize I'm trying to be an ally. And, um, you know, for years, because I included heroes of mine that weren't just white males, but, you know, people of, of color, male, female, um, from all sorts of different cultures, I was given a lot of credit for being um, willing to include subject matter in my work that you wouldn't see from most artists or in most museums. But then, um, uh, you know, starting about five years ago, I was told, you're not allowed to make a, a portrait of um, Martin Luther King or or Chuck D from Public Enemy because that's not your culture. And, you know, I think that my belief in advancing civil rights and and having difficult conversations about race is part of the culture I've chosen to be, um, oh, you know, yeah. to, be ta- you know, to be taking on. And, and so, you know, it's, uh, I, I find, I find it um, very counterproductive that somebody would say white people make art of white people and non-white people make art of non-white people. This is the same kind of um, selective segregation that's created all the problems. <laughs> so, um, oh, yeah. so, so yes, I, I, w- the, to really clarify, though, I have realized that representation matters. And when there's an opportunity for someone who has been underrepresented to be the be the face and the voice of a project, um, I don't want to get in the way of that ever. Yeah, I, I, I mean, some some uh, some of these people, oh, yeah, you can't do Chuck D because you're white. I would love to lock them in a room with Chuck D and have him read them the fucking riot act. Well, Chuck is a friend of mine and we've collaborated on several projects. And I know that you had a great collaboration with, with Ice-T. And in fact, the use of the word posse yeah. in my original Andre the Giant has a posse sticker was inspired by an Ice-T lyric. I'm living large as possible, posse unstoppable from the song Power. And, um, you know, on the very next record, it's your sp- spoken word. Um, a message from our sponsor over Black Sabbath at the beginning, which um, is a you know a brilliant collaboration, and um, and you know I thought was such an excellent cross pollination of cultures, and you know his audience being turned on to you, your audience being turned on to him, and you know, I loved seeing what you guys were doing. So um, yeah, screw all that nonsense. It wasn't even a planned collaboration either. I guess Ice heard the spoken word thing, message from our sponsor that opens my first spoken word album, No More Cocoons, and has been the opening ceremony of every spoken word show since, pretty much. Anyway, um, he heard it mixed with some kind of dance music or something behind it on two turntables going at once in Sydney, Australia. 
And it turned out the DJ was George Clastinus, who played drums earlier in a band on AT called Grong Grong. He's like gone into the techno world and never looked back. Amazing. It was George who did this. I didn't know. Nobody asked me until finally I get a call from Howie Klein, the ever controversial and unfairly maligned guy from the early San Francisco punk scene who was a little more establishment and stuff and managed a poppy band called the Ready Maids, co-founded 415 Records, who you know did really well with Romeo Void and uh and and uh many, many more. Anyway, um you know and then he he went up that got him upwards to working for Sire and Warner Brothers. And he was at Sire at the time, not running the thing yet. But, uh, you know, he he called me up. Yeah, there's something you need to be aware of. And we, we need to negotiate your clearance on this, which, of course, meant I was going to get paid. And it was for that track. And so then he gave me the number of Eric Greenspan. Little did I know he's a very high powered lawyer who represented Ice-T. I just called him and we worked out a deal and I was okay with it and they were okay with it. And net result, I got buddies with ice tea and uh, Chuck D too. We haven't run across paths as much, but uh, much respect of course, and much knowledge gained. And so, uh, you know, it was found art in a way I was sampled about five minutes of me at once. And the black Sabbath thing was looped and all that. And so, um, that was how that was done. You know, I could have said no. I could have denied it. Oh, nobody samples me. But how dumb would that have been? I mean, you know, it, it, it samples, especially with hip hop, it is audio collage using a melody and thing to make another song or a track, as they often call it. And I thought it was a great collaboration. Um, uh, you know, I, I love Ice-T, love the Dead Kennedys. And then seeing- Not the last- Either. Seeing, seeing you guys um, on on a few of the talk shows together, I, I I thought your rapport was great. And one of the things that Ice T said was that he had had some he had had some homophobic lyrics, and that speaking to you about that was thing disabused him of his of his ignorance on that subject and helped him him to evolve. And I thought that it was uh, one really courageous that he would admit that he needed to evolve because hip hop is so much about, you know, Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm the King. I'm, I'm bragging about how no one, no one could tell me anything I don't already know. And so I, you know, I, I saw, I saw it as something that not only was cool as a piece of art, but might have given some people a, a an excuse to not just be hard, but to show some vulnerability in hip hop, which I think it needed at the time. Well, it always does. I I never knew he'd said that. Never knew about that. That's cool. I mean, I knew he had also credited me with opening him up when we were talking after the Rodney King riots in a joint spin interview and said, you know, you and I both are really, really good about and very, very graphic, volatile words about what's wrong and who we hate and why we're mad at them, at some point we've got to offer people some ways out and some solution. Yeah. And not just, you know, la-di-da ones, but real ones and stuff, brick by brick solutions. 
and uh, not just, oh, get involved, get involved. That's not brick by brick, which was a little bit of an issue I had with both Michael Moore and Ralph Nader because they didn't really go any further than that. On You could specifically do this. You could specifically do that as, as you know, as one of the gateway drugs, even registering for vote and reading all the ballot initiatives for crying out loud. Gateway drug. But, um, you know, and he, and he said he'd taken that to heart, too. I haven't talked to him in a long time, and he may be, his future may be on Renegade Roundtable. And if <laughs> I got through to him directly about his uh, gay bashing, maybe I'll try again with the way he treats the sisters. Right. You right. know, every Body Count album, there has to be one completely misogynist thing somewhere in the, yeah, that's still me. And, you know, I, I kind of wish it wasn't and stuff. But, uh, yeah, we shall see on that one. Um, another thing you have acknowledged and recognized, direct quote here, I am no longer seen as an underdog. Yeah. Um, and, that, you know, that's what happens when you have success. And um, for for years, I was desperate for anyone to care about what I was doing. and then when it slowly started to happen. It quickly snowballed in into me feeling like I have people that like what I do that I can't relate to. And now, um, you know, now I'm, I'm seen potentially as part of the very mainstream culture that I, I was trying to get people to snap out of adhering to, um, you know, this is, I think a, a a problem for anyone who makes something that takes on a life of its own beyond um, beyond exactly how they would like it to live in the world if they had sole control over it. And um, you know, on the one hand, I'm I'm very happy that I've been able to exit <laughs> squalor and um, make a decent living and and put art into the world that I'm you know, I have the resources to put things out there, whether it's huge murals or, um, uh, or free poster campaigns that I couldn't do without having some financial success. But I also, you know, I, I, I also don't like the being on the, I guess you could say the, 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 the hamster wheel of, of business. It's very, um, you know, it, it's something that I, I think undermines people's, judgment and i've tried to maintain my uh, my my values my principles my idealism and i i have called my approach in many interviews the inside outside strategy i still approach everything like if the system doesn't offer me a way to to say what i want convey what i want i will work outside the system but if i can infiltrate the system and use its machinery to broadcast my message in an uncompromised way that's very subversive. And, you know, you mentioned, um, you mentioned earlier, I, I, I don't remember who it was in regards to, but that, that French concept of detournement, you know, using the machinery against itself in a way. I think it's a very fine line. Most people, once they get in the machine, become corrupted by the machine. And I'm, I'm, I'm trying very, very hard to be a socially conscious person within capitalism, which is why I donate from almost every print I make. I, um, I do things for causes, organizations I believe in. And, 
Um, you know, I, I use the I use the power and the tools at my disposal that have come with success to put the spotlight on and provide funds for things that I think um, need the nourishment. Let's at some point, and this had to have been long before the Hope poster. You had gone from obey and provocative stuff to doing major label album covers and gig posters for very, very big time major label bands, a Led Zeppelin box set even. But I'm assuming they partly, you know, I don't know if you had an agent getting you the work or it was the other way around, but obviously it was supposed to look like something that was made by you. Yeah, I um... even then. I mean, I, I'm a fan of Led Zeppelin and I was excited to do, um, to do that project. I, you know, I, I think that, um, there's a lot of great music out there. Led Zeppelin, I really enjoy them musically. I, um, spiritually, I don't connect with Led Zeppelin the way I connect with the Dead Kennedys or the Clash or Black Flag, um, Bad Brains, but I, I do like the music. So when I was offered to do that project where I'm doing artwork for a band I like and I'm being paid for it, this was kind of a um, a rare situation where art and commerce were converging symbiotically. I, for After my screen printing business failed miserably, I had to regroup and figure out how to survive creatively. So for years, I worked as a graphic designer doing things for everyone from you know, uh, small record labels to, to Levi's and, and, you know, even, even Toyota for, you know, projects they were doing. And my, my criteria was I won't do anything for a corporation I have an ethical problem with. So I turned down work from, from Hummer, from Marlboro, from a, a gimmicky metal skateboard company. But there were a lot of things that I did that I, I felt were, a way to earn a living that were going to give me enough freedom to then also pursue my own projects. And eventually I moved away from that because my own projects started to succeed. But, you know, it's uh, in a way the opposite trajectory from the way a lot of people go who start in the underground. They then realize there's big bucks in the corporate world and they, and then they go, okay, cool. I'm going to, I'm going to suck off that tit for a while um, because you know that's that's where all the juice is. But I, on the other hand, had to take some work like that just to survive, and then moved away from it. Um, you know, at this point, I really only work on my my own creative projects. How did you get that work in the first place? How did you vault or step by step from? obey stickers and getting a bigger and bigger name with little smaller album covers to suddenly getting these bigger gigs. You know, I, Did I, they really find I really don't you know or... other than that my, my work in the streets functioned like a, um, <laughs> you could say like, like a, a, an underground branding campaign and everybody that's doing things in hip culture wants to be seen as edgy. And so, you know, I, I guess uh, I know that it was the Metallica guys who liked my work that then turned on the Led Zeppelin guys to my work. And um, I actually uh. really, really love Metallica. I love, um, you know, their, their albums from the 80s, I think, are some really strong albums. And even when I was listening to primarily punk rock, I still 
would throw on Ride the Lightning or Master of Puppets or, or Kill Em All. I like that music. And, um, and so I, I thought it was kind of amazing, one, that the Metallica guys even knew who I was, and two, that they, they would say to Led Zeppelin, hey, you guys should check out this artist. Um, you know, there, uh, things happen the way they happen organically. Um, I, you know, who knows how you, you said, you said how Ice-T discovered your music from a, from a DJ and wanted to use that bit and it, and it moves from there. I think I'd created enough surface area with my work that just organically people were stumble, stumbling upon it. Of course, I had a, a, a small design agency called Studio Number One and the before that um, with a different partner, one called Black Market. And we had a website, but we we didn't have the funds to advertise in a way. Um, but working in the skateboard industry, working in the uh, with small clothing brands, underground clothing brands, a lot of what impacts dominant culture comes up from from the streets. And so I think I think it just functioned like that. And a lot of the those companies said to me, "Why don't you do a campaign for us that's like the Obey campaign?" And I said, "Because no one will respond positively to it because it won't be authentic." The moment they realize it's a corporate campaign masquerading as a, as an underground street campaign, they'll not only turn against you, but they'll hate me for creating it for you. If your idea is to um, engender um, you know, some, some, some goodwill from those people, what you need to do is you need to support underground things. You, you need, you need to support a good music festival or you don't, you don't co-opt it. You, you underwrite it in a way that says this, you know, Hey, we benevolently let this, uh, allow this thing to happen that a lot of people enjoy without interfering in, in, in it creatively without undermining its authenticity authenticity and especially without trying to trick people so in a way i was <laughs> i was trying to be kind of a you know a, a a whisperer to the corporations that don't you know don't do the typical things where you think you're doing something cool but in fact it's just ruining culture and making people mad at you <laughs> But um, as far as when you say I'm no longer seen as an undergar underdog and, you know, you do not regret being able to survive and now making a pretty damn good living off your work. When I came down to finish the cover for Audacity of Hype with you and um, I had no idea if I was going to a little shop like Steve Human had or some other people or early AT offices or what. And then here's this huge two-story building, which for all I know, you actually own the building. Do you or not? I can't remember. Yeah, my, we're, we're, my, we're all my wife and I own the building. It's in, it's in Echo Park in Los Angeles on, on yeah. Sunset Boulevard. And we have the art gallery on the first floor, along with the shipping for all my prints and, and stickers and books. And then on uh, the second, the second floor is um, where I have my design office. Um, and I work on illustrations and, and graphic design there. And, um, and I have a, a small team. And then I have an art studio nearby. Um, so I, you know, I've been very, very lucky that I have these spaces that I can work in that allow me to do what I, what I do as well as show other artists work. I mean, one of, one of the things that was very important to me early on was to 
help support emerging artists who I thought deserved attention for what they were doing. The art world is a very mixed bag. And, um, you know, just like what you were doing with putting out a compilation like Let Them Eat Jelly Beans, making sure that the bands you thought were exciting were getting attention, we're trying to do that with Subliminal Projects, our gallery. Yeah, I, 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 we, we, there was just a fluke that Bob Last from Fast Product in Scotland, the label that licensed California Uber Alice and put it out over there, and were a red hot label in all those British weekly magazines. They'd put out the debuts of Gang of Four, Human League, Mekons, compilation with a band called Joy Division on it. You name it, everybody was watching them to see what was next. They wanted to put out our record, and we weren't even from the UK or anything. And that could have happened to anybody. We were the best band in San Francisco. We weren't the biggest band in San Francisco. I think the Dills were at that point. And somehow that happened to us. And then we got to make an album. We got to go play over there. And all these people are coming backstage. Why are you the only bad, good band in America? And like, no, 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 that's wrong. You haven't heard of Black Flag. You haven't heard of Flipper. Not even DOA. I got to do something about this. And so thus let them eat jelly beans, you know, punk on one side and the more unusual stuff still with one hell of an edge on the other side to give people a, a wider, wider kind of sounds to uh, experience and all. And little did I know that the biggest impact it would have for first would be on the European continent. It actually got licensed into Italy and Finland and I think Germany and those people were picking up on it. And they had kick-ass hardcore scenes of that specific kind of punk before England did. I mean, Discharge was its own thing. And then it spilled back over and it got released in America and it proved to be, you know, the the way to explore this stuff, gateway drug for way more people there, although it had it was good in England too. Yeah, just just kicking back, kicking back. But then I come to the building. And not only was this big old building and stuff, but it was a whole hive of people. You say small staff. Yeah, you had a staff, you had a whole hive, and they were all in one of the room we were working in, or a lot of them were working on other projects, ad work or whatever. And it was all part of this one hive. I hope it's not like working for Thomas Edison in Menlo Park, where everything you invented belonged to him and was patented in his name. Thus, all the reports that an African-American scientist invented the light bulb, not Thomas Edison. You know, that, that's an interesting one. Um, but, but, but it was uh, the, the guy who helped with the poster inside while you were working on the other thing. You know, he had very strong ideas of what he wanted to do, what he was doing with his own work as well. So um, you don't own everything people who work for you make. Surely not. No, no, not at all. Um, really, the mentality is... Um, hiring people who want to do more than just do graphic design. They want to, they want to be artists. They want to say something to the world, but they need to earn a paycheck. And the, the pretty common thing is that they, they like my work and they like the model that I've used and they want to, they want to be part of that until they're able to go out on their own. So artists like Cleon Peterson, who's really well known now, he, you know, he worked with me for, for many years and I'm always supporting these artists and promoting what they're doing through our gallery, through my social media, through through pretty much every mechanism, doing collaborations with them. Phil Lumbang, who worked on the poster for the interior of the Audacity of Hype, 
yeah, he's a successful artist on his own. Now, Ernesto Urena, who was also in my office, he's a successful artist. He and I are collaborating on something right now, but he's... But he's not the one who worked on the on the B poster, the parody of the Obama logo poster. Press. It wasn't Ernesto, it was the other guy. Yeah, it was Phil. It was Phil. And Phil okay. is um, still still a friend and he's he's doing very well. So a lot of times people, they... They're working with me and it's they're being paid, but there's an apprenticeship component to it. And once they get their footing, they go off on their own with their, you know, with their own ideas and their own style and um, and they build their own career. And I um, am happy for them. I mean, what, what really struck me when we started working was. You know, it wasn't all with paint and brush or ink. That picture from my face that was used for audacity of hype, you were moving like mouth and eyebrows. It was all on the computer. Did this mean you had... That was after I had illustrated it. I then scanned it. And once it was scanned, I could make edits um, very quickly. So, you know, you had the the basic illustration that I did based on the the photo still with some embellishments then that then i scanned that then once i had that in the program illustrator i could make edits very quickly and efficiently that would be difficult to do and undo um as as a physical piece of art so my my way of working is um since the since the late 90s has been a hybrid of analog and digital but you know, the, the, I guess the music world analogy would be if you, you know, if you played a, a guitar part, a bass part, a drums part, and then you're mixing them in Pro Tools, but then you realize that like you, you know, there's a, there's a tweak that you can make that hasn't taken it out of character to the extent that it doesn't sound authentic anymore, but it's, uh, right. you, you know, you're, you're getting a result that you feel is superior um, you know, I think a lot of musicians work that way. And I, um, with my fine art, I make an illustration, I scan it, I work out a digital composition. Then I make stencils and screens and, and collage and go back and work on the physical piece. So it goes analog, digital, back to analog. So the original illustration of me, based on the still from the Widower movie, you, drew, you didn't dr- draw that in the computer, so to speak. Like Michelle from Voivod does everything now, but um, so you actually drew that by hand and then yes, computer okay exactly yeah and then, wow. and then scanned it and it's um, you know it's a, it's a technique that a lot of people use in the computer where they scan an image and then use the pen tool in Illustrator to basically um, you you know use the photograph as a template but stylizing it. I do that by hand still with a material called Ruby Lith, where I put the Ruby Lith, which is translucent over the photograph and I cut it with an X-Acto knife, like a stencil where I'm not cutting all the way through. So I'm using the photo as my, as my reference, but not precisely tracing it because that doesn't leave room for the idealizing and stylizing that I want. So I'm taking certain liberties, you know, artistic license and, um, and that's the way I made the the Obama image and the way I make a lot of my images. But some of them I'm taking, you know, major liberties because it it, uh, it calls for that. And that's how I editorialize the way I want. Other things that need to look like somebody 
that uh, you know is a real person, I'm sticking closer to what they what they look like. But still, um, you know, in the way that Robbie Canal painted an unflattering, drippy face of Reagan, but it was recognizable as Reagan. My illustration of of Barack Obama simplified to three colors and and all the planes in the face simplified and and stylized has a very different character from the photograph of Obama that I worked from. Interesting, because it's a very soulful picture on the Hope poster. It's not just a picture of a guy. It's a very soulful, soulful, so perfect for something with hope written on it when we (laughs) didn't know he was going to pick Biden for vice president and put Larry Summers in charge of the economy, blah, 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 blah. But, and not put any of the crooks in jail after the economy crashed. We could go on all about that all night. But you know what, when I, when I was watching you work and we were playing with it and playing with it, and I don't know whether I was more picky than most people you'd brought in to deal with their ugly mugs with the ugly mug talking at you right in the room, but, um, step back, look forward, step back, look forward. It was, it was cool. It was fun. I hope you had at least fun, some fun too, but, but really, it just amazed me how much you could move little things like that. And so I got to ask you, given that ability you have, why did you give on your obey version of the guy, Richard Nixon, much more of an appealing movie star smile than he ever had in real life? Because you gave I, him bigger top teeth and stuff. Yeah, I, d- I did. And it was based on a postcard I had seen that said, would you buy a used car from this man? You've probably seen it before. I think it was, um, you know, it was, a, it was a fairly common bit of pop culture, counterculture, ephemera during um, you know, Nixon's time in office, uh, probably especially after the the Watergate, Watergate was bubbling up, but um, I saw Nixon as somebody that when you caricatured him by making him seem friendly to the point of ins- insincerity was more frightening. Well, you you gave, it, what frightened me was it, it, not so much that as you gave him star power. He didn't look as much as like this miserable, creepy screen monster that he was back then. Nobody no- voted for him because they liked him. They just, they liked his policies and they hated us, basically. And he played on that, as we know. So, yeah, you, you gave him you gave him movie star pizzazz. That's just my opinion. That's funny. Overall. I, 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 um, I should have consulted Chef Biafra before, uh, before putting <laughs> that dish into the world. But... Um... But anyway, at I, least you gave George W. Bush a fang, and he is that was of, you're not the first one who did. <laughs> damn, he deserves that one. But with all this meticulous work you do on these, I mean, I'm on the Obey Giant, you know, Obey Giant Incorporated, whatever mailing list, and there's another poster every couple weeks or so. Some of which look like it took a long time with all the layers and stuff going on especially knowing now that someone starts his illustrations, you know, how do you have time to crank all these things out? You've got kids too. You travel a lot. Yeah. Well, I, um, I work a lot. I enjoy my work and I, you know, I work a two shift day. I, I work through the normal nine to five, um, on art and illustration and uh, taking meetings with, with, nonprofits and uh, overseeing what some other people in my studio are doing. 
And then at night I have peace at home and I, I work again. And a lot of times when I'm at home, that's when I have some space to experiment and really get get work done where there are no distractions, there are no interruptions, time just disappears. And I, I I'm I'm a type one diabetic. And when I was uh, diagnosed with diabetes as a 16 year old, one of the things my dad said was the good news is they have insulin. You can live as a diabetic. The bad news is you'll probably live about 20 years less than most people. My dad's a doctor and he doesn't sugarcoat anything. So he just came out with that. And um, I wasn't upset with him for giving me the, the real deal, but it did make me think I don't want to waste any time. Um, we have a limited time on the, you know, on the planet. And I, I want to make sure that I say what I want to say. And this is probably a, a personality defect of mine because I don't take enough time to enjoy the simple things. And I need to be better at that. I'm, I'm not normal in that way. And I know that you're not normal either. We, we share that, but um, I'm trying to be a little bit better about getting away from the irony that I make things to try to make life less miserable. And yet I don't make myself available to enjoy less misery with my own family sometimes. <laughs> yeah. But admittedly, if I finally gotten lyrics to work or a piece of music, even if it's really heavy hitting, deadly, dark stuff, I'm dancing around a little place where I write that stuff with glee, like a child and things, just uh, giggling at the whole thing. Well, um, and in your case, you, you've graduated to mural projects all over the world now, too. Whole other thing. Um, do you do others help you paint? Yeah, when I paint the large scale murals, I work with a team. Um, usually, it's me and three other people, and um, I have some art assistants that have been working with me for for many years. One of them for nineteen, almost twenty years. One for um, for uh, let's see, fifteen years and uh, another one for 10 years. And those those three guys, um, Nick, Dan, and Rob are the ones that usually help me with the murals. But there are, there are a few other people that help here and there depending on availability because uh, Nick and Dan both have children and they're not always available to go on the trips to travel. But um, you know, painting the big murals, it's very labor intensive. It's, it's hard. It's you know, it's hard work. It's a grind because the way we paint them is cutting a stencil directly on the wall. Uh, you know, sometimes it's a 10 story stencil um, because this is the way I can get all the precise detail and the proportions exactly right. I basically illustrate and design the image, um, blow it up to full size, print it out in grayscale in, in, on sheets of paper that are three by four feet long, just like the original Andre the Giant over CNC's billboard, but just it takes 200 pieces instead of six pieces. Oh, man. And we, you know, we get up on scaffolding or, or um, window washing rigs, swing stages, um, or use scissor lifts, depending on how high things are. And we we sit there and cut the stencils and paint with spray paint and, and roller paint. And, uh, we, you know, we work like human inkjet printers in a grid going back and forth across. If you see a time lapse, it really looks like um, an inkjet printer 
on on the uh, side of a building. But um, but to see the landscape transformed and to see how people cannot ignore something that's many stories tall that is not an advertising. It's a it's some you know expression and human communication that isn't just about commerce. It's about ideas. I think that it's very important for people to be exposed to that. Yeah. I, I mean, even with a lot of the posters, I mean, somewhere along the line, we got more digital or whatever and expanded with what people would accept that you would do. A lot of the anger and punk range also began to unfold into beauty and, you know, so-called war also turning into celebrations of war on the system, turning into celebrations of peace so there's many different sides to what you're doing now that weren't there. And, that, and of course, some of the murals are strictly, you know, beauty for beauty's sake rather than a political statement, though not all. Yeah, the, the, you know, there's always something in there that's, that's um, trying to nudge people in a direction, but some of it's more subtle. Some of it's about, about peace and harmony and, and um, protecting nature, respecting nature. Um, you know, some of it is is more overt. Obviously, when you get uh, into doing large scale things, there's a lot more bureaucracy. There's a lot more of an approvals process. And I always go for what I would like to convey and then sometimes have to adjust it. And, uh, you know, I would I'd say that I, there have been a few projects that I just had to abandon because I couldn't come to a solution that I was happy with, with the with the bureaucrats, but usually I find a way to say what I want to say. I'm getting ready to go to Louisville, Kentucky um, to paint an eight story Muhammad Ali mural that um, it oh, nice. is including text um, from him that that's, uh, you know, stuff that people wouldn't necessarily know. He had a, he had a set of principles, um, giving conviction, spirituality. He's got a lot of great quotes, um, but People, a lot of people don't know that he was also a UN messenger of peace. He was appointed by the UN. He was a conscientious objector to the Vietnam War, civil rights activist. So I'm uh, doing this portrait knowing that a lot of people will be attracted to, to him based on his, his accomplishments as an athlete, but also knowing that that's a, that, you know, that's a, a great point of departure for other aspects of, uh, of his work that people might not know. So you know, I, I look at some of the murals as taking a Trojan horse approach, like, oh, you're lured in by by the beauty of it, by the subject, um, even just by a compelling portrait of someone who's an archetype, no one famous. But then if you pay attention to the other elements, there's an unmistakable message if you take the time to look at it. Right. I mean, I think in retrospect, Muhammad Ali was you know, the third person in the trifecta of the really, really important civil rights leaders of that period, Dr. King and Malcolm X, and let's face it, Muhammad Ali too. Yeah, I, I very much so. I, I agree with that. He was the most famous man in the world eventually. By the time he was, had all those brawls with Joe Frazier and stuff, he was the most famous man in the world. And he did way, way more with that and much better things with that than say other famous famous people in the world we have been exposed to like Michael Jordan, let alone Tiger Woods. Yeah, well, you know, he, they didn't do as much as Muhammad Ali did. He 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 had you know the the courage to speak his mind even if it was going to 
hurt his, you know, his cash flow. And, um, you know, what more can you ask for that someone, someone develops a platform and they use it courageously. Um, you know, I'm, I'm boxing to me is, um, is a, is a bit brutal. I mean, the, what it takes to be someone that's willing to get beaten up in the ring and try to beat someone else up. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's very intense. I, you know, I admire the, the, the stamina of it, but I'm, you know, I'm a pacifist, but, you know, beyond what I feel about, about boxing as a sport, the way that Muhammad Ali showed tenacity in the ring and in the real world is, is pretty inspiring. Yes, I would say so too. I mean, homophobia and whatever else or not, I mean, you can't cancel everybody just because there's one flaw that really, really bothers you long term you know you got to take the inspiration from the inspiring parts i mean you know they say jello jello why do you like jerry lee lewis so much what a horrible human being he was well his attitude in a lot of ways you take that look at him when he's being arrested in the 1950s with all those cops just laughing how punk rock is that the ethos the spirit and i can tell a mile away when somebody calling themselves punk rock their music ain't got no Jerry Lee in them. Yeah. I can tell. Yeah, they're within fifty just, seconds sometimes. You gotta listen to Jerry Lee or you don't know rock and roll. I mean the the the, the spirit of uh of irrepressible youth is undeniable in what he was doing. That he, you know, um he's he's a poster child for do just doing it your own way. I mean, not, much more than Sid Vicious. Um, the, you know the the, the oh, spirit. Know. The spirit the is inactive. there. I mean, it's there. It's there in Chuck Berry as well. But I mean, Jerry, yeah. Jerry Lee for sure. I mean, um, Eddie Cochran. It's there with him. Have you ever done Jerry Lee? I've seen a Chuck Berry of yours. Have you ever done Jerry Lee? No, I, I haven't. Um, you know, it's a little a little before. You know, my, my time, it's, you know, my dad's, my dad loved Jerry Lee Lewis. Um, and I, you know, I think Jerry Lee Lewis is, is great. I have done Johnny Cash. You know, I think Johnny, Johnny right. Cash is a, he's, you know, he's cut from the same cloth and I, I don't like all the gospel stuff that he did. And I, you know, there's, there's plenty of his music that I think is mediocre, but the great stuff is great. And he, yeah, the, oh, yeah, the way that he um, used his platform as well, I think is um, whether it was Native American rights or, um, you know, speak, speaking out about any number of issues, um, prison, you know, people who've been in prison shouldn't be discarded by society. All, you know, all this, even if it came from the point of romanticizing crime and rebellion, it actually became something meaningful and serious. And, uh, and, I, you know, I'm paraphrasing Bukowski, but he said something along the lines of, if it's worth saying, it's worth saying with style. And, um, you know, uh, Johnny Cash did that pretty well. Yeah, I don't think he's glamorizing doing life for a stupid murder. And the best known, most overly covered song of his in the punk rock era anyway, of course, was Folsom Prison Blues. Yeah. Uh, and it is called Blues for a reason. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's an incredible song. I've seen a few pictures where instead of the Andre the Giant face, you've put the misfit skull, which they didn't even come up with. It's out of a horror movie, but it's you put the misfit skull inside Andre the Giant's face, including Obey below it. And that has popped up some places, too. 
And those guys are not known for thick skin or a sense of humor, to put it mildly. Did they ever come after you about that? That's a funny story. Um, I made I made the original mashup of the Fiend Skull and the Andre face back in 2000. And you know, I've loved the Misfits since I was a teenager, loved the iconography. And I just sort of squinted at the Fiend Skull and realized that the degraded Fiend Skull and the degraded Andre face had some things in common and I could bring them together. And then just coincidentally, my friend Big Dave, who worked for Ozzy Osbourne, suggested the same idea. And I was like, okay, the universe has spoken. I'm doing this. So I did it. And then I met the Misfits manager and I met Jerry Only at a trade show, um, a clothing trade show where they were doing a, a signing. And I decided I would stay in, I would suggest the idea to them and say that, you know, I'd send it to them and see what they thought. And what Jerry and the, and John, the manager said is, we like your work. If you want to do that, as if you make any t-shirts or anything, you just have to give us a royalty from it. So I did that. And, uh, and they were, you know, I only made a hundred t-shirts and I gave them a royalty, but as part of it, I started just making stencils and posters that I would put up that were more or less saying, um, I love the Misfits and here's a, here's a mashup of my Andre with the Misfits Fiend Skull. And, and okay. yeah, and a lot of people, a lot of people um, enjoyed it who were already Misfits fans or, or who were already Obey fans. And, um, and you know, and it, and it took on this life of its own. A lot of people got tattoos of it. And then in 2018, the Misfits reached out to me about doing their 40th anniversary logo. And I did that and then also did a capsule collection through my, through my Obey clothing line. Um, and I've done, I've done collaborative collections with, with Public Enemy, with the MC5, with um, Suicidal Tendencies, with the Sex Pistols, with a lot of different bands um, that I like. And, um, you know, I would love to do one with the Dead Kennedys if that were going to be a clean and easy thing. But um, but it, but anyway, the them and the people they've surrounded themselves with. But um, I mean, I would love to have loved to have had 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 a skateboard when you did those too. But it is not worth the grief, right? So, uh, but you know, so you made really cool ones for me and Alternative Tentacles. Though you're welcome to make more <laughs> or different thanks. ones. Well, that was fun. I mean, I grew up skating on Powell Peralta boards a lot, so it was great that they did that um, with with you and and the label. But anyway, that you know, all through this Misfits thing, um, I knew that Glenn Danzig was griping about this. And, you know, the sad thing is that a lot of the fan art for the Misfits has been what's kept the Misfits so relevant. Um, you know, there are a lot of there are a lot of punk bands that don't uh, they, they don't get passed down to every new generation of 15 year olds. And the Misfits do. And a lot of it is because of the way it's taken on a life of its own with uh, it's all these different fan mutations that exist out there. That iconography is so easy to riff off of there. You know, there's one that I see over uh, around LA a lot. That's Alfred E. Newman and the Fiend Skull mixed together. And uh, you know, there, and there's one that's um, Lucille Ball and the Fiend Skull mixed together. I, I'm, I'm um, you know, not the last to create 
a mashup. And Glenn Danzig should be appreciating that this keeps people curious about the misfits. You know, Metallica covering them back in 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 the in the eighties did a lot of a, a lot of good for them because it put their music into a much broader audience. But you know, there's all this underground stuff that that Glenn Danzig should not suppress. He should embrace. Well, I, I'm still bumming at Guns N' Roses when they did their covers album, The Spaghetti Incident, and did not cover Too Drunk to Fuck. <laughs> if there ever was a band that should cover that song, it would have been them. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. Yeah, they did New Rose. Um, they, you know, they they uh, they they would make sense for that. And you know, I um, I don't know um, the Guns N' Roses guys well. I know Duff and. Uh, Duff is an, a really great guy who started off as a as a punk rocker and you know became a hard rock right. guy. But um, still, when they when they play, they sometimes they sometimes cover New Rose. Um, and I think you know that, that's that's great for the damned. Well, yeah, they haven't it never left their set either, which is quite cool. So with this in mind, I don't know the answer to this, but I got to ask it anyway. Have other people then started putting up their own stickers and posters, making fun of yours? Oh, of course, yeah. Once you become known, um, you go quickly from the 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 cool secret um, to the you know the sellout, the um, the 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 watered down mainstream target um, of certain people, and I'm. Um, I'm always amused by by that that process and and seeing some of the results has been has been fun for me because I actually relate. I know that if I were that younger person who felt like they had a, a bond with what I was doing and then saw the jock kid at their school wearing an Obey t-shirt, that I might have reacted the same way. So one of my favorites was um the uh, same sticker as the original Andre the Giant has a posse, but the way it was changed was just instead of it saying Andre the Giant has a posse, it just said Andre the Giant is so passe. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, I think that came out in 1991. I'd been doing my stickers on a very underground scale, limited volume for two years. And yet for the underground, it was already too big not to make fun of. Um, you know, there have been... Well, it's not even too big not to make fun of when you were still a student in Rhode Island. Yeah, but I mean, that's uh, that. I mean, that's how I was. John Travolta, John Travolta has a leisure suit. Stickers went up. Oh yeah, have you you've seen that one? That was made by a guy who I used to skateboard with. I haven't seen it. I've seen you. You mentioned it in one of the books, but I didn't see it. Yeah, I it's um, put it in a, a guy I used to skateboard with in in uh, in Charleston. He, I mean, he must have spent thousands and thousands of dollars on these on uh, on these uh John Travolta has a leisure suit Andre can't dance stickers and he was putting them you know <laughs> everywhere until he finally got spotted by a a, a off duty cop who wrote his license plate down and they raided his house and arrested him and took his stick his took his sticker stash and he thought wow all this all this heartache just to make fun of Shepard's sticker um but <laughs> <laughs> But uh, yeah, I mean, there there there've been there've been tons of them, and the way I look at the parodies is if it's a way for that person to have some voice, some something therapeutic, 
Um, even, even if I think it's you know, misguided to target me or maybe not misguided, it, it shows that what I, what I have created has some, um, has some impact. And it also inspired somebody to get off their ass and not just be um, someone who passively accepts what's presented to them. They're saying, I'm going to actually participate in the conversation. And even if I don't agree with what they're saying, that's better than just being a sheep. Yeah, that's something that's gone viral in the last week to 10 days is somebody who put a fair amount of work into this got a picture of Jennifer Lopez on her knees with a sparkly skin tight outfit and whatnot and put my head on top. And then up the upper left-hand corner is the same dripping lettering that um, Holtzfeuer from Arnocore made for my Tea Party Revenge porn album. It's the same dripping lettering, and it says J-Lo Biafra on it. <laughs> and even, it's even her hand and her fingernails around her jeweled microphone with my face going at the microphone and it looks totally real. You know, somebody went the extra mile on that one. And is it hilarious? You bet it is. But uh, it's probably on alternative tentacles social media now too. Um, shifting back to music, actually, unless you want to say something there right, real quick. Well, I, I just think that, you know, that, that person is demonstrating that they, that they, they got the, um, they got the ling linguistic convenience of that and they could manifest that visually. And it's, you know, it's a huge, it's a, it's a, it's a joke problem to solve and it provides something light for people. And that, you know, and that's great. Sometimes I think that, you know, there isn't enough seriousness in the world, but then uh, we also need a relief from being too serious now. And then we need some escape valve. And that's, what's great about your lyrics the, you know, that you're taking on heavy topics with dark humor and you have that, you have that balance between something that's very, very provocative and intense. And then the, the dark humor absurdity of it that allows you to just say, yeah, we live in a ridiculous world. I'd love if um, I could make it a little bit less ridiculous, but at least I can laugh at it also. Having a, a, a creative outlet is, that's rewarding to people having, even if it's something just humorous and absurd and light. It's uh, it's putting something out into the world that means you're not just a spectator, you're a participant. And it, it can be really joyful to feel that em empowerment and that somebody gets a chuckle out of something you're doing. That that's a that opens doors to a lot for people. So, you know, I, even my original Andre sticker started off as sort of an absurd inside joke with a couple of skater friends, but then it unlocked something for me and it evolved. And um, humor, I think, is a really valuable part of oh, yeah. human, you know, human nature, and and the, you know, there's a need that we have for it. And to address the things that are heavy, we need to also be able to blow off steam and laugh. So I was saying that for me, the Dead Kennedys, the the dark, absurd humor, and uh, plenty of the songs, Kill the Poor, um, Terminal Preppy, Bleed, Bleed for, for Me. me. I mean, there's so much dark. humor in the songs, and it's all well i mean cowboy cowboy ronnie comes to town and forks out his tongue at human rights the peace corps <laughs> the, the peace corps builds us a labor camp while they think they're building schools ha! i mean even if it's just your ha um i mean there's 
there is some, there's, there's vivid imagery that's got a dark humor to it. That's, you know, like, Hey, op- op- open your eyes. What you're seeing is not what you're really seeing um, is not what's really going on. And um, you know, there, there, there might be better examples of humor than bleed for me. Bleed for me is one of my favorite dead Kennedy songs, by the way. But you know th- this uh, about the dirty wars in South America. You you found you you found a, a really good balance of between um, you know stuff that's provocative and stuff that is uh, funny and ridiculous and um, and that's a, that's like what I was saying before the Trojan horse approach of you ha- you know you have a, a really blistering fast fun uh music that allows people to you know feel like they some of their aggressive energy has an outlet and yet there's some heady stuff in there and then and then there's the humor the the sugar that helps the medicine go down it's all it's all a very smart strategy and you know i think you are doing it both intellectually and and intuitively based on based on feeling, but I think you got the, I think you got the mix right. And it's something that in my work um, I'm, I'm striving for. I might in one piece be relying more on you know, a really in your face graphic approach. In another, I'm using some beauty and seduction. In another, I'm using humor. Some of them have all three. I mean, I have an, an image that's from not that long ago. That's about the, the monolithic power of the fossil fuel industries and how difficult it is to um, overhaul the, the, the thinking that, uh, that, you know, we, we need to use as much oil as we use that individual activists are up against a lot. And um, I've, I've got some beauty in that, uh, an, an attractive activist subject, but then um, there's a little ad for the, for the black earth society, which is of course a reference to the flat earth society people that no matter how much science has been presented to them will not believe that the earth isn't flat. And these, these are the people we're up against, but that's my, you know, that's my, my nod to Jello Biafra in that piece. Well, little did you know that to try and get more brain food, I wrote to the flat earth society in the early (laughs) eighties of trying to package it. So it wouldn't set them off. See if they send me some literature and whatnot, I wouldn't charge me a bunch of money to join them. And <laughs> I got a letter back from Charles Johnson himself with a, a little like a little bulletin thing and stuff. And you say this, I don't know what you mean there. And I'm not sure I know what you mean here. <laughs> and then I read the thing and he's taking he dismisses all of us who believe the world is round as grease ballers. <laughs> Problem is these stupid grease ballers in the world. Now we have NBA stars who think the world is flat again, for real. So, uh, oh, how these things do come around. Um, okay, when we were when we did the work on uh, Audacity of Hype and kind of got to spend a day with you, hang, get to know each other better, and all that good stuff, and wound up crashing at your house that night, which you were very kind to let me invade and stuff. Um, and I wound up in the basement surrounded by records. And I guess that was your DJ record collection as opposed to a, a different kind of record collection. I didn't even know you DJed at all. And, oh, what's he got? What's he got? What's he got? Uh, hip-hop 12-inch, hip-hop 12-inch, hip-hop 12-inch. Wow. 
he knows a lot about this stuff. You know, all these artists I'd ever heard of, and my hip hop knowledge is pretty limited. I had no idea you were that big on hip hop as well as punk. Yeah, I lo- I love punk, but when Public Enemy and NWA, Boogie Down Productions, um, Run DMC, the Beastie Boys, who had been a punk rock band, when all that came, right, right, Beastie. Yeah, Boys, when yeah. all that came along, I I really saw it as. Um, a similar mindset to punk rock being DIY, being resourceful, not being a trained musician, but making great music, using samples of other people's music, uh, having a lot of attitude that said, you know, uh, society says this and I say something else. It, it, to me, it, it just was fun music that had a, a similar mindset to punk rock, but with a different aesthetic. And, um, so I, I, you know, I love that early hip hop from about the early to mid '80s through the the early '90s. That's that's my favorite stuff. And you know, some of the people were more politically outspoken, like Public Enemy. And Public Enemy is one of my all time favorites. You know, it wasn't all social or political um, in you know in the way that punk rock is, but there was always that sort of street reportage of, you know, stuff is, stuff is rough out there. And the danger is that I think some of it felt like it was glorifying that world. And, and especially for people who weren't living it and understanding that this was not fun, the, you know, the idea that they would then have a romantic idea of packing a gun was disturbing to me, but I really, I love hip hop as a, a, you know, as a music form. And when I, DJ, I frequently play hip hop because people want to shake their rump. You know, I, um, you know, I like, I like stuff that makes you pump your fist or shake your rump or both. Um, and you know, public enemy obviously yeah. do both, but I, you know, I'll, I'll throw in, um, a lot of different kinds of music. I might, when I DJ, I might play, um, you know, I might p- play the clash, the Ramones. I might play some hip hop. I might play some James Brown. It's going to be, might play some cramps. Um, and if it's the right crowd, I might play some Dead Kennedys. Um, you know, Holiday in Cambodia actually is a really catchy song that a lot of people will will, will get down to. Let's lynch the landlord, um, especially with the prices these days. A lot of people will 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 join in the chorus of that song. Um, <laughs> but you know, oh yeah, for, for me, first part of that song that came into my head was the guitar solo. Then I had to find the rest of the song and I wanted to make a song called Let's Lynch the Landlord and slowly it all converged. Well, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a great, great track and, uh, you know, super fun, super catchy. I mean, that's part of the genius of the Dead Kennedys is that there's musically it's intense, but it's also really catchy. And, uh, you know, you, you guys, you guys figured out how to, for me as a, you know, as a 14 year old, how to hit exactly what I was hoping for. Um, but anyway, to, you know, to, to get back to the DJing, I am not a, a, a super socially comfortable person just going out there and being like, Hey, you know, you want to talk to this guy. Um, so to be social and, and have some influence over the atmosphere, DJing was a great way for me to contribute without making s- awkward small talk. And, um, and also taking people on a, on a journey musically that had some of the stuff that I enjoyed listening to some, edu- you know, introducing them to some new stuff that might educate them about, 
about some stuff, but mostly it's about feeling. It's about fun. And so when I, you know, when I DJ, I'm not necessarily playing what I would listen to just in my studio while I'm working on art. There is, there is the component of what is this audience going to, what are they, what are they going to get down with in a way that will, you know, maintain some energy and how can I, how can I play that game of here's something you know, and the inertia from that carries you into something you don't know, but you can't even, you're already going and you're like, oh, this euphoric feeling I have now is connecting with this thing that's brand new, but I, but I like it. Oh, it's, it's uncharted territory, but I'm digging it. And uh, all the best DJs, I think, do that well. I strive to do that. But I, I, you know, I've DJed with you before and you're a great DJ. I'm hearing stuff that I've never heard before and immediately saying, yeah, why am I never the hit? I play, try to infect people with stuff that should be hits. Exactly. That's exactly what you do. And I, I picked up on that right away. And what, you know, whether it's like, you know, surf music or 60s garage, um, you know, or, or, or some, some weird glam thing I haven't heard. I mean, your, your taste is really great in lots of different genres. So, uh, I mean, you're quite open-minded considering that, you know, some people, some people characterize you as, as, uh, you know, a dogmatic punk rocker. You're much more open-minded than you're sometimes given credit for. I'm dogmatic about everything. (laughs) (laughs) Music, food. I mean, food, it's politically correct if it tastes good and it's politically incorrect if I can't stand it. (laughs) With things like canned tuna, eggplant, olives, pickles. (laughs) Politically incorrect. Yeah can't do it i i mean as far as the 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 the, the feeling and the pulse i mean it's kind of you're djing i mean if the women's butts be moving keep on grooving yeah even if it's only two or down to two or three at once it was a soul dj specialist who'd come out of the texas garage scene named jonathan tobin who got me into djing again i hadn't really done it much since high school i had a few queer punk events for a little bit but um including playing don't stop thinking about tomorrow by fleetwood mac which i had to borrow and (laughs) switching it out again and again with cop killer after bill clinton got in and stuff (laughs) that that was fun but as well as when Ross Perot was president, hurrah, hurrah, and all these right-wing political records had come my way too. But anyway, Jonathan Tobin, I'd, I'd done one thing where they just wanted me there so they could put my name on the flyer and have me judge a dance contest, complete with numbers on people's backs, like the 30s. That's the, one of the features of Soul Clap, the thing he does. And his umbrella name is New York Night Train, but he doesn't just do soul but soul clap is a that was kind of opening me up and it turned out we both were talking records and we both knew billy and miriam from the norton label in new york and so then he comes back through and ian Sphenonius from the makeup and nation mm-hmm. of ulysses and all is also djing with him it was a multi-room thing why don't you try it why don't you try it oh my god what am i gonna do for a soul dj i just recently decided i liked soul doing no small part to the bell rays and stuff what am i, I only have a few like really weird obscure soul things that i've discovered that I, i'll just bring those maybe i could get away with this and maybe i can get away with that and there was a little bit of instrumental stuff a little bit of maybe a garage one or two that was soul garage and stuff and they loved it they loved it including i got away with squirting in 
Pets Eat Their Master by my current band, Guantanamo School of Medicine, squirted it in. (laughs) And a lot of the clientele was young Asian women that particular night. And they were really getting into it. And they still got into it. They didn't leave the floor at all. They were loving it. They were loving it. So then I was in. And even the other soul DJs were looking at the soul records I was playing. What is this? I've never heard this before. What's that one? A lot. So then I knew, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna be fine with this. And if it's gonna be my own thing, I'm gonna put punk in and some other things. Usually, if it's metal, it's only Motorhead or Ministry. But uh, yeah. you know, because they've got a groove. Yep. You know, yep. the 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 dance era of Jorgensen. Man, plus being as into Hawkwind as I am, you know, it, the groove thing is is there with him. And it's and there's some other metal bands that don't have groove at all. They may be huge bands, but they don't take do for me what that stuff with the groove does. Rob Zombie's got great grooves these days as well. Yeah, and um. Was it you who had the little program booklet this time for the big annual noise pop festival up here that your favorite noise pop experience ever was DJing with me and Bob Mold, all three of us at once? Or was that somebody else who said that? That was me. Who experienced that? Was me, man. Okay. That, was, that was so fun because, you know, I'm, I'm a huge fan and Dead Kennedys, of course, which, you know, um, and so, you know, DJing with the two of you guys and seeing, you know, Bob would play some indie rock and then play some some techno, and then you know, you know, you're you're playing you're you're playing this this like uh, you know some sort of distorted garage beach blanket bingo type thing I've never heard, but that is as infectious as hell. And I'm just going, wow, this is this is so wacky, and yet it's perfect. Um, and that was that was just so so much fun to be trading off rec- playing records with you guys. Well, it really blew my mind. It was really fun that they had to get two trestle tables on a stage because we were all using different kinds of equipment. I, I'm old school, vinyl only, wheels of steel and all that. Bob uses a laptop with tons of stuff he could go to that he wanted to play. And he really knows his post-punk, oh, yeah. too, yeah. from the early days till now, all kinds of stuff was coming out of him and things. I've DJed with him elsewhere too. And, um, and then you had this device. It looked like there was two of those DJ CD things you can twirl around, but then you had also had a computer laptop, I presume, or something where you could actually put a piece of a punk record like somebody might be doing if they're a, a hip hop DJ and extend the song and extend the groove and add other things to it. I'd never seen that done anywhere else ever. Well, what is it? I, what are you doing? It's uh it's it's Serato and I'm I'm using I'm using turntables just like you, but with a Serato control record that allows me to play an MP3 off of my computer um without any delay. So, you know, I can I can sync it, pitch adjust, scratch, but I've made my own re-edits of things. So like, you know, the, the cramps human fly where I'm, I'm adding a little um, soul drum break into it or PIL's death disco where I'm adding a bongo beat into it. And sometimes I'm doing these mixes live on the fly and other times it's stuff that's too complex to do that way. So I've made my own new edit of a track that, you know, you know, one aspect of the track but then there's another there's another part of it that you've never heard mixed that way, and I'm you know and I'm the one that's got it. And 
Right. For, for me, right. for me, DJing w- was something I fell in love with because it was like audiographic design. When I look at my art, there's original illustration, but there's also a lot of graphic design in experimenting with composition and elements and how things are scaled, how they sit next to each other, what colors are used and DJing, figuring out, oh, I like this. I like this. What's the right combination though, where the sum is greater than its parts rather than them interfering with each other, which you sometimes hear from bad DJs. And, and so, you know, just relentlessly experimenting with that, it was, it was the same joyful trial and error that I get from um, graphic design with visuals. So if I, if I lost my vision, I would be doing musical things for sure, because what ends up working together is something I can hear very easily. I don't play an instrument, but, uh, but as a DJ, I can, you know, I can, I can find that's that sweet spot. Right. So, so, and, and are you improving the sweet spots or is a lot of that stuff planned or cut together ahead of time with you? Well, the, the, a lot of times the tracks um, that I like to play, you know, I have, I have on my computer, but which direction I'm going to go with it is, is possibly um, something I've thought of based on what kind of crowd I think is going to be there. And um, and, you know, oh, I think this is going to be a hip hop heavy crowd or this crowd is going to want to hear the Ramones and the, and the Sweet and David Bowie. They're going to be like glam into early punk. Um, but maybe I'm going to throw some some uh, Northern Soul, Gloria Jones, the original version of Tainted Love in there because it's still got a similar um, a similar tempo. And, you know, the, the connection from the Ramones to the Motown thing is not far. You know, I'm looking for threads and I'm looking for what threads I think that audience is going to follow. And sometimes I'll, I'll, you know, I'll go in a, in a direction thinking everybody's going to want to go with me in that direction and realize it was not working. And then I have to find a way to pivot to something else gracefully, like, Oh, you know, that was just a little bit of a fun detour, but now we're going back this way, but it was all part of the master plan. Uh, but, you know, that's, I mean, every now and then, a, a, you know, a, a, a failure is okay. It gives people a second to take a pee break and grab a, grab a beer or whatever. But, um, you know, yeah. I, I, I love that it's, 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 a, it's like a living, evolving organism when you're doing it. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, the, the, uh, the connecting the Ramones with Motown, and boy, do they connect with Beach Boy surf vocal music, yeah, and yeah. even girl group music too. I mean, I think when you when you compliment me on the the melodies and the actual tunage of Dead Kennedys, which I've always wanted it to be good, always wanted it to be different, and you know, as you probably know, I came up with most of Dead Kennedys' music as well as the lyrics. Yeah. And even though, even though I don't play an instrument and, uh, and with Guantanamo school of medicine, they're very patient with me because I got to sing the whole thing and whatnot, but, uh, you know, they work, they're good songs. I like them anyway. You know, I try to make stuff that I am going to like, because if other people are, if I like it, other people probably like it too, but it's also, especially more after the soul thing and the DJ thing crept in, putting stuff together 
with Guantanamo School of Medicine, I have very groove conscious. Right. You know, a lot of, oh, don't try the kick snare this way. Try it this way. See what this does and stuff. See if it's got that beat that makes me want to shake, you know, and if it doesn't, maybe try something else. And a lot of that came from being a little bit older than you and growing up in the 60s. You know, a lot of kids didn't experience the 60s nearly as deeply as I did, not just because I was a political news hound, which my parents encouraged and educated me against racism very, very early on. And the media wasn't so censored there. You saw the bloody wounded soldiers in Vietnam, the Biafra War, where I got my name, all those yeah. starving children lying all over the ground. I wanted the visual image to collide with jello in Americans' heads. And, you know, just like a, like a, like an obey sticker it does something to you you know that was that was my motive but but that is kind of my wellspring as much as punk is what is now being called 60s garage music and i always went for the heavy stuff soon as dad was trying to get me to go to sleep playing around with an am radio and landed on a rock and roll station oh i like that leave it there leave it there 1965 yeah. beatlemania and then there was no stopping me and I immediately went to the early Stones and Paul Revere and the Raiders, who were much more of a template for a lot of the other unknown garage bands now than the Pretty Things ever were. Their version, because they had all their, their version of Stepping Stone. The Paul Revere version of Stepping Stone is something I DJ still all the time. I love that version. I'll have to look into that one. I'm not. I've really paid attention to their version of that. The, the Monkeys version is 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 a lot more of a Beatles kind of knockoff sound. The Paul Revere version has got a great groove, but it's also kicking. I mean, it, it's, it packs a punch. Right, right, right. No, a lot of their stuff did. They weren't writing much of their own tunes by then, but the really good ones, well, a lot of them were Barry Mann and Cynthia Weil, who also wrote some of the later Animal stuff too. Another huge favorite from back then. But trying to create something... Not everything on an album mine is going to be DJable, of course, but trying to make something that's, you know, I, I try for a hit every single time. Even if it's a hit, only a hit to me, and even if it isn't quite that good at the end, but still really worth playing. I don't like albums with a couple of good songs and a bunch of pablum just to get an album out, too. Yeah, I never had to resort to that. I, I couldn't come up with pablum if I tried. Yeah. But... Uh, yeah, but that's where a lot of my stuff comes from. The DJ brain is always there. I've sequenced every single record, including Lard, that I've ever been involved with. Mm -hmm. You know, I, the DJ brain, sequenced Fresh Fruit, and Bedtime for Democracy was the hardest because there's, what, 22 songs on there? Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah. I mean, I I, uh, I think I've told you that the first Dead Kennedys record I, I got was Plastic Surgery Disasters, and to me... It's just, it's perfectly sequenced. Um, the high energy right out of the gate, it just draws you right in. But then the melancholy ending with, with Moon Over Marin is really, uh, it's such a, it's a really beautiful song. And it's, um, yeah. and it's very, it's very poetic. And I, sometimes I hate the word poetic because it sounds so pretentious, but the, the idea that it evokes something that um, that is universal in a in an elevated way um, it, it really achieves that it's uh you know existence are we going you know are we gonna continue to exist in you know in a in an ideal form or be in a you know in a world where you got to go outside in a gas mask 
man, that's like an environmental anthem to me. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, saying save the whales was so unpunk at the time. They had to be crafted as environmental disaster songs yeah. instead, like cesspools and Eden being another one a little bit later. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, yeah, with Moon Over Marin, it was such a beautiful piece of music. Ray had been playing around with it practically since I met him. And then there was a jam once I walked in and they were doing some other stuff that became the intro. Like, hey, wait a put it together with that Ray riff that's kind of the Eno riff. Let's see what happens. Oh, shit. What am I going to do for lyrics? I don't write love songs. I would be good at it if I tried. And it's not exactly beauty. What do I do about, oh. An environmental disaster song. This will work. And it had no title. Klaus titled it later. Interesting. I that's how you got Moon Over Marin. So the the um you know now Marin is very, very affluent, and I didn't know anything about the 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 different demographics of the Bay Area when I first heard that. But then later my assumption was that, you know, any any environmental disaster, the people who are the best off will maybe not fare well, but they'll fare better than everyone else. And so the idea that it, the environmental disaster, the only thing left, even in Marin would be the moonlight was pretty powerful to me, but was, what was the intention? Well, I mean, I just wrote it, though it's needed lyrics and I wanted, you know, some creepy environmental disaster song. And uh, that was what you got at the end. But what about I mean, the, I, the, the I, choice of Marin? What was, um, you know, what was fueling that choice? And rather than there will well, always be a moon o- over Berkeley or San, or Oakland or San Francisco. Well, you know what Marin County is as well as I do. Right. It's across the Golden Gate Bridge from San Francisco. They voted down having BART out there because they didn't want all those people who take a train moving into their nice, beautiful, and most of it rather well off. I mean, not everybody is, but, um, you know, it, it, there's a certain kind of creature that lives there. Right. That it's not that far away from the kind of creatures that have given my old hometown of Boulder such a bad name, and partly why I left. But um, it's a it's a California thing. So you add people who would vote for Reagan for governor and this, that, and the other, and uh, you know. So uh, and and of course, this is somebody in the song who is so rich they have access to their own beach or at least their own access to a beach. And so down they go, and then they go running around on the beach. Not everybody gets to do that, but certain kinds of Marin people do. All right, so my, my, so my, my, my interpretation was, was, uh, was pretty accurate. I just wanted, to, just wanted to, you know, check my math on that. So thank you. Yeah, well, another another one we should get to then if we're going to go into go into go into Shepard interviewing me about Dead Kennedy's your favorite Dead Kennedy songs. We got to do this one. You mentioned Kill the Poor earlier, and that was actually inspired by Devo, mm. and not Devo's music, but Devo's interviews. I'm sure by now you've taken a look since it's been reissued in book form of the best punk zine ever made, Search and Destroy. Yeah out of San Francisco. And the beauty of Search and Destroy was one or two maximum rock and roll shop talk type questions to get it going. And then Vale or whoever else was doing the interview would just start poking at people, trying to coax out of them stuff they knew that not everybody else did and stuff that uh, 
<clears throat> some of the weirdest things that ever happened to them and things like that. And Devo in one of them was talking about something that was an issue in the mainstream news at the time being debated whether or not to go whole hog and pissing away our tax money on building the neutron bomb. President Jimmy Carter was in favor of the neutron bomb. It was practically an inevitable thing, at least at that time. But Devo said, hey, look, the whole purpose of this bomb, it blows up and it kills people in mass, but the property doesn't get destroyed. That's not what you use on your enemies. That's what you use to clear your own lower income areas out of poor people. That's what that is. And so there were already all kinds of boo-hoo, nuclear bombs are bad songs, but I thought, and even a couple of pretty damn good anti-neutron bomb songs, Weirdos and the, I think the Controllers one even came out before the Weirdos one. Anyway, so it was on people's heads. It was a bad thing, but I thought, hmm, I've always been fascinated with villains. When that show came on the air, I switched from wanting to be in a on hullabaloo with a band like the Animals to uh, be a Batman villain. I love the Penguin, love the Riddlers. This is my role models. When I grow up, I want to be a fireman. No, I want to be a villain. <laughs> and, uh, and so then I thought, then I had yeah, pretty decent method acting training and stuff. I played Scrooge at one point and the Boris Karloff role in Arsenic and Old Lace for another. So that method acting, you put yourself, you build the character from inside and, and instead of having it glued onto you, and you see things through the lens of other people. In the case of acting that, that style in, the, in a character partly of your own creation, and you even began to almost see things that aren't really there and stuff, but it's part of, part of the character. So I put that hat back on. I think in retrospect, method acting was a huge influence on the kind of you are there visual lyrics I write, as well as how I like my music mixed. I want atmosphere. I want vibe. Mm -hmm. You know, the lyrics Moon Over Marin in the music for Nazi punks fuck off would not pack the same wallop by any stretch of the imagination. The vibe has got to be right. So I thought with a villain, okay, we got enough anti-nuke songs. We got enough war is bad songs. What about one from the Pentagon's point of view singing war is good? Right. From their own villainous mentality. And so that was what Kill the Poor was. You, you know, we, now the efficiency and progress and bazaars once more, it's nice and quick and clean that gets things done away with excess enemy, but no less value to property. The best of all, the rest can have more fun. Kind of a clumsy line, but I was just trying to learn how to write lyrics. And the rest is history. The only song I ever did where I had to use another verse twice because I couldn't come up with a third one. Now it's cutting everything down. Right. <laughs> is the problem, especially after all those four hour spoken word shows. But also, to even drive home the point of what Kill the Poor was, as well as a warped sense of humor from a political band, when the political bands, especially overseas, were not known for a warped sense of humor, for the most part, on top of everything else. And so I tried, there's one pass still on the two-inch, 24-track master that didn't get used, a vocal take for Kill the Poor, where I did it as Brian Ferry. <laughs> 
because I always was really good at imitating his voice. I mean, that's how I learned, got my singing voice was imitating all these other singers instead of my teachers when I was going around delivering pizzas and I was all alone. What if I imitated stuff I liked? But then I could also <laughs> lampoon some, including including him, of course. So there was efficiency in progress is ours once more. Now that we have the new to run bomb, it's nice and quick and clean and gets things done (laughs) virginia plain um yeah um that makes sense man that's funny i mean your your voice is um there's almost like a a cartoon character side to your voice that is just inherent in your voice which is great because it's 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 it it is and it is it makes your singing fun when a lot of the subject matter is kind of scary and it makes I think I think there's a there's this theatrical side to it that makes it um yeah. it makes it work really well and so I you know I got the as a 14 year old hearing kill the poor my assumption was this is Reagan's perspective and I I already knew that uh, you know Ra- Reagan doesn't like he doesn't like unions he doesn't like homeless people he doesn't like people with uh mental illness um so i you know i I, and even though i think that was written before reagan was in office i i wasn't too oh yeah um oh i know i sometimes i should stop writing all this shit because it keeps coming true even the worst case sci-fi scenarios and the eco disaster (laughs) song keep coming true you know so um I actually, oh I, i i own winston's collage for the backside of the kill the poor seven inch the his reinterpretation oh, yeah. of the scream. I bu- I bought the original art from him. You've got the wow, lucky you. That's awesome. It's one of That's my favorite awesome. pieces. I made my own homemade T-shirt of that when I was in high school. The, the you're not the only one who did. I have a feeling too. <laughs> but that one, oh yeah. But the only Winston originals I own, one was a present, a littler one that was cool, and then another one was all this stuff on top of a Holiday Inn painting of a mountainscape and stuff but it was really cool and he didn't like it here take it away (laughs) so i took it away still hasn't been on one of my album covers oh i think frightwig or somebody with one of the people in frightwig in recent years used that for something but it ain't the same if i use it it's just like neutron bomb songs i mean the moral majority song on in god we trust incorporated there was already the circle jerk song and the one by dc youth brigade which is a real good one but by then i felt a strong enough sense of who we are, who I was. And if I do it, it's going to hit more people, especially if I do it my cruel way and stuff. So there's room for another moral majority song. This one. Yeah. I, I love it. Um, I mean, come on. The, the, there's only so many, there's only so many themes that humanity has to deal with. And so there's, there's going to be a lot of redundancy, but it's, it's how you do it. Um, that's, that's what makes the difference. What do you think, and you can just restrict this to art or revolt, <laughs> fighting the power if you want, what are the best things and the worst things about our overall situation in the world today? And not just viewed through Shepherd Fairy the artist, but viewed through Shepherd Fairy the father and the world your daughters are going into and what's going to happen with them and to them. Well, the two major things to me 
our environmental decline, climate change, which means that a lot of people are going to be displaced. There's going to be a lot of chaos and suffering that doesn't need to happen. There's also going to be a lot of money spent that powerful people are going to use as an excuse to defund social programs, et cetera. The, the, the dominoes falling from, from climate change are, um, are, are going to be really terrible for lots of reasons. Um, the, other thing is, the other thing is that to address climate change, we need a functioning democracy. The undermining of democracy, of suppression of voting rights, and stacking of courts with conservative judges, all of these things that undermine the way democracy is supposed to function that have been happening dur during Trump um, beyond are going to be really hard to undo. And, you know, just like 1984 is a cautionary novel about what does it look like when the state is in absolute control and people have no freedom, people aren't getting how close they aren't understanding how close we're getting to that. And so, you know, these, these are the things that are, they're, they're intersectional problems. You can't fix the, the climate um, without the, you know, climate change problems and environmental problems without having a government that can overhaul things on a large scale. It requires more than just individuals. It requires corporations to change their ways as well. And if you can't, if you can't, if you can't have um, democracy actually serve um, what what at least fifty one percent of the people want. I mean, when you look at when you look at studies, um, sixty to seventy percent of people will want a movement on an issue, and if the most powerful corporations and lobbyists disagree, there will be no action on it. I mean, functionally, democracy is. It, it you know is dead in the water. So I these are the things I'm really worried about, and it requires people to pay attention and participate. They are things that can be overcome, but it's but not with the levels of complacency and and apathy that that we have, and the how pervasive disinformation is. Truth itself is in question, and I I don't know how to fix that. Yeah, I, I, this isn't really a magic fix or anything, and this is maybe with younger people in mind as well as others like us i'm thinking maybe several different shepherd posters with something on it <laughs> to do this but you look at you know the threats on democracy and climate collapse as it should be called and you know one of the worst places as well as just how mean people are being encouraged to get and how anti-democratic mm -hmm. this that and the other january 6th was just the beginning not the end and look no further than florida and that horrid megalomaniac who will be vastly worse than trump if he ever seizes power and of course the only way he can is if like Trump getting in and W getting in twice, it really is a stolen election. But the things that are being targeted there, as well as democracy and encouraging people to grow better bullshit detectors and yeah. stuff, yeah. is um, a particular one for, for the trans community, especially kids going through not knowing who they are biologically, sexually, or whatever. I mean, there, there's more out there 
And this is the good side of the internet for people to meet each other. Know they're not the only person hitting puberty who think they may be in the wrong body and stuff, but something to uplift people, to let them know, especially in Florida, it's not like this everywhere else. And you're, you know, what you're doing, who you are is good. It's not bad. It's not satanic. And that also goes for the war on education, the war on knowledge, the war on thinking, which, of course, is like everything from critical race theory to attacking drag queen story time with fucking guns and stuff. They're just trying to see, thanks to thanks to a 6-3 of extremists on the Supreme Court who are accountable to no one now, all these people are doing all these things to try and out-Nazi each other that they never would have even thought of doing before. And maybe even would have, what I've even thought was a good idea or cool, but now it's just the, it's the kind of snowball that happened with Hitler, it happened with Milosevic and so many others where people are tolerating more and more horrors. And as a visual artist, I'm just trying to think out loud here as we go, that something to take that piece by piece to crack back open, not just the hope of people who may be having less and less and be fucking terrified right now and being forced to go, and teachers being forced to go to the Florida schools and what's happening in other countries and Above all in this stuff, watch out for Glenn Youngkin in Virginia. He's the industrial baron's choice, who doesn't appear to be like DeSantis, with a nice little cut-off sweater and that little smile and stuff. He may well be actually worse, and he used to run the Carlisle Group. So um, he's their guy. Yeah. He is their fucking... But anyway, but that's my... Think of that long-term as a series that would communicate or at least inspire surreal or more directly people let people know they're not alone. Yeah. I, uh, I, th- I think that's a smart approach. And, um, my, my hope is that by continuing, uh, continuing to get more extreme that people like DeSantis, um, and members of the Supreme court that, you know, people are going to finally be be woken up by the the you know the intensity of the hate and division. I really thought that that would happen with Trump, um, and it did to a degree. But I think a lot of the a, a lot of the levers that had already been pulled for us to end up where we are because people never see they never see what's happening as it's happening. They only see it as you know w- once it's manifested, and so hopefully there will be pushback. And I think that, you know, in, encouragement for people who have, who have felt like the, you know, the, the, the forces uh, of, of make America great again, um, culture are, are, are really making this country a hostile place for them. Um, will know they have allies. Um, you know, I think that that's extremely important because when people know that they're not alone, they will, they will feel like their actions make a difference when they feel completely isolated and hopeless, then they won't act. And so knowing that there are more of us than there, than there are of, of, of them, the, you know, the people that, that it choose um, moving backward and, and, you know, hate and division over, over moving forward. Um, I, I think um, is what people need, need to be reminded of in a way that's uh, 
not just hippy dippy sappy, but um, but you know, empowering. You know, we can't just whine because Bush got another term. As a friend of mine, Vic, mostly who managed the makers, said, "No, now it's time to get evil." <laughs> Both of which is still a very big part in our hearts and stuff. So, uh, you know, may that spirit never leave you. And uh, on that note, beware the stealth DeSantis. It's Glenn Youngkin. DeSantis is just too too wild. But uh, but on the other hand, you know, keep on keeping on. And yeah, time to get evil because those targets deserve to be tormented every single minute of the day. Couldn't agree more. They take their kids away from them. <laughs> There's an Ice T song about that. It's old home invasion. We stole your kids. <laughs> yeah. All right. Indeed. Take care, Shepard. Yeah. Renegade Roundtable over and out. Great to great to talk with you, Jello. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.